For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the teaching pastor here at Southland, and we're just going to keep mowing along here with our series on Jesus. And uh, we could go forever probably on this series. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, am, I, I just am loving Jesus more and more. And didn't that song we just sang, that was Isaiah 6. Remember last week, Isaiah 6, who's I, who's, who is the, the Lord with whose robe filled the temple that we were singing about just now? Jesus, right? And so that whole, that song, I just, I love Jesus. And I hope that as a church, I was praying now as we were worshiping, I was praying, oh Lord, with every one of these messages, Jesus, I want your people. My goal today is that we're going to want to read our Bibles more and we're going to want to meet Jesus more and love him more. Amen? Amen. And so last week, we did, uh, the message was all on how Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is not some different God. The Old Testament God, Yahweh, powerful, glorious, holy, majestic, he took on flesh, and that's Jesus. And so we looked at that, and so I, I showed you this diagram last week, and I showed you how, and I mean, we just scratched the surface. I mean, we could have spent, we could spend months just on this point, months and months and months. But I showed you how the New Testament authors are obsessed through right, every book, from Matthew to Revelation, the New Testament authors are obsessed with putting Jesus into, into this. They are obsessed with linking Jesus to Yahweh and showing him to be in each of these categories that the Old Testament said was that Yahweh did it. The New Testament writers are showing us that's Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Okay? And so I just, I just love that message. Last week's message, I, I was looking forward to preaching that for a long time because I just think it unlocks First of all, I think it unlocks the scriptures. Second of all, I think when we, when we finish there in Philippians 2, and by the way, at the end of this message, we're going to go back to Philippians 2, and we're going to look at, the, at a couple of verses in there. It's just awesome. But I think it really unlocks our heart for Jesus. But I was planning in my planning for this series, I was planning this week to go into Jesus, uh, the human part of him. But I have to, we have to kind of put the series on pause for one message here because I have to answer some questions because uh, after the message last week, I just got question after question after question after question, good questions. After last week's message, Jesus is Yahweh sunk in for a, a bunch of you. A bunch of you started to think, what does this mean for the Trinity, right? I mean, if, if, if Jesus is Yahweh, see, we're so used to thinking of Yahweh as God the Father, you know, the Old Testament God, that's God the Father, and Jesus is God the Son. We're so used to thinking of them as, as different that when I show you in the New Testament that Jesus is Yahweh, people think, oh, then that means what happens to God the Father? It's almost like we're booting God the Father out of the Trinity. It's almost like people were asking me, does God the Father do anything? Because if Jesus is the New Testament and Jesus is the Old Testament, then is God the Father just kind of sitting there twiddling his thumbs? And so questions about the Trinity and stuff. And, and, you know, some Christians nowadays don't have an appetite for these kinds of messages to talk about something like the Trinity. But I'm going to spend this message. We're going to talk about the Trinity. And uh, the Trinity is not just some airy doctrine that's out there that doesn't matter. The church has fought more for the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ that over the last 2,000 years, right from the disciples today, the church has fought more for those doctrines than any other doctrine by far. And the reason is because pretty much every heresy, cult, false doctrine is ultimately rooted in distorted views of the Trinity and who Jesus is. So today's message is a little bit of a thinking cap message because I need to remove the blocks. After last week's message, I want you to just love Jesus. But for some people, then, it brings up questions about the Trinity that you can't love them all out because you don't really know what's going on. Today, I want to remove barriers. I want you to think properly about the Trinity. I want to remove barriers for you so you can go on loving Jesus all out. Are you in for that? Let's pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you, God, not nearly enough. We want to love you more. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today. I pray that you would cause our, our hearts and our minds to be open, that we, can, that we can know how to think biblically and properly about who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, there was actually one thing I just forgot to do. There, there's a, there, you know, in getting ready for this series, uh, there's a whole bunch of books and materials that I've been studying and, and whatnot, and and most of them are, to be honest with you, very dry, boring, things that most of you wouldn't want to read. But this last week, I came across a book uh, that, it, on Tuesday, I'm in my office, I got a stack of books there, 
And I came across a book, and I opened it up, and right away I just felt like I, I got a little prompting that this is a church that the, the or this is a book that the church could really, uh, uh, you know, dig their, their teeth into. And it's a book about Jesus, and I think it just reinforces what we're talking about in this series. And so I'm going to just put it up. I don't do this often, but I'm just going to put it up there. I just want to highly recommend a book to you. And it's called Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ. And this is a really, if you have pen and paper, I would highly recommend, to put, to make a note of this book. This whole book, what I talked about last week, uh, I mean, I wish I would have read this book before I talked about it, because they, they actually, in some ways, put, put it in, a better, in better terms even than I did. But uh, this whole book is a book devoted to taking you through the New Testament and showing how the New Testament writers are linking Jesus back to the Old Testament and showing Jesus to be Yahweh. It is brilliant. Okay, if you read this book, you are going to know, your, your eyes are going to be opened, you're going to understand the New Testament way more because the fact of the matter is, most of us as Christians today, uh, we, we miss a lot of what the New Testament writers are doing because two reasons. First of all, we don't know our Old Testament very good. And number two, we don't understand the Jewish mindset very good. This book will open up your eyes to both of those things in a huge way. You will understand the Old Testament more. You will understand the New Testament more. You will understand who Jesus is more. And I think through all that, you're going to love Jesus more. And the, one of the reasons I love this book is it's, it's divided up into five easy-to-remember sections. Each section has four short chapters, really short. They're like six pages each, six to eight pages. And so it's little bites. This is not the kind of book you just... You just you know, bore it from the library and you rip through it in a week and you're done. Uh, what, I, what I would encourage you to do is get this book and you read it with your devotions. You spend 10 or 15 minutes being in your devotions and you just take little bites and you learn what the New Testament is saying about Jesus. And you learn how the New Testament is linking him into the Old Testament. And your eyes are open. You, you take a little bite every morning and then you get into God's word and you worship him and you do all that sort of stuff. But I, I would really recommend it. So many Christians today, the only books we read are feel-good, self-help books. And there's a place for those things too. But the fact of the matter is most of the reading we as Christians do today is milk and cookies and Hebrews 5.12 says we need to be eating meat. This book is for those of you who want a little bit of meat because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And it's about God's word and it's about becoming a mature student of his word. So anyway, let's get on with the, with the Trinity and this whole idea that, you know, if Jesus is Yahweh, have we booted uh, the Father out of the Trinity? And I want to put up a, uh, a diagram there. And I want to show you how we as Christians normally tend to think of the Trinity. This is how we normally tend to think of the Trinity. And this is why my message last week raised a bunch of questions. Are, is, are we booting the Father of the Trinity? The reason we, we think that is because we think Yahweh is one part of the Trinity and not the whole thing. This is how most Christians, I would say probably 99% of Christians have this kind of a picture of the Trinity in their minds. They think Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, I'm going to link him to God the Father. Then God the Son, Jesus, is a totally different person. Then there's the Holy Spirit. And so when I say Jesus is Yahweh, it looks like he's two parts, he's two-thirds of the Trinity now. And that's where the question comes from. And so I want to show you today a biblical view of the Trinity. And before I change this diagram for you, though, there's something else I want to hit. And, and it's something I've been, I've been kind of hitting and touching on throughout this series, but I want to just hit it from the whole point of view of the Trinity today uh, once and for all. And it's this idea we have that we give different character traits to each member of the Trinity. So when we think of Yahweh, God the Father... We think of a God who is holy and wrathful and awesome and a little bit scary. And when we think of Jesus, the Son of God, we think of a different set of character traits. Empathetic, merciful, loving. He's definitely less scary to us, maybe a little less powerful. Even if we wouldn't say it up here, we feel it in here. And this is a completely... The, these two things together have come together to give us an extremely distorted view in what I think the majority of Christians today have this kind of a view in their hearts of the Trinity, and it's very distorted how we think about God, and ultimately it leads to all kinds of error as you read Scripture and as you try to worship Jesus and as you try to worship God. See, because the moment, the moment you give, the moment you make Yahweh one part of the Trinity and you give different characteristics, okay, and then there's the Holy Spirit. We don't know what to do with him, right? So, I mean, we Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, whoa, don't even know. So, but we give, here's different parts of the Trinity, different characteristics. Um, the thing you have to realize is the moment you do this, that's not the Trinity anymore. That's called tritheism, 
okay? I told you you're going to need your thinking caps today. I'm going to try and go slow. Tritheism is not a trinity. It means three gods. If Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit have different attributes, some are more powerful, one is more powerful than another, one is more holy than another, one is, is more merciful than another, one is more wrathful than another. If they have different attributes and they have different character traits, we no longer have one God, we have three separate gods. And Scripture is very clear about something. It is very clear that God, there is only one God. And again, most of us here today, if you're a Christian here today, you totally would say that. Yeah, there's only one God, but in your heart, we treat the members of the Trinity as three separate gods because we think of them as having different attributes and different character traits in each other. But I want to show you from Scripture as we go through this message that there is one God, and what does that mean? Um, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says this. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament for sure and possibly the entire Bible. It's called the Shema. It has to do with the identity of who God is. Jesus quotes it several times in the New Testament. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day would, would, would recite the Shema twice every day, once at the beginning, in the morning when they got up, and once in the evening before they went to bed, um, because actually Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 says that's what you're supposed to do. And so that's what they would do. And this has to do with the identity of God, and here's what Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We have to take this passage seriously, and there's dozens more like this in the Old Testament and, uh, and in the New Testament as well that say over and over and over again, there is only one God and he is one. And the Hebrew there can actually be translated a couple different ways. I'll put those ones up there too just to help you get the force of what Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is saying. It could also say the Lord our God is one Lord or it could say the Lord our God is our God, the Lord alone. Now, Here's the significance of that. We can't, on the one hand, hold that to be true, and then on the other hand, in our hearts, imagine there to be three separate gods, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, are all different in character and attributes. The fact that there is one God, we must hold to this. There is only one God, and he is one. And this is important. I mean, this is not a minor thing like, oh, this doesn't really apply to my life. This is one of the most important passages about the identity of God in the Bible. Know this, Yahweh says to us, there is one God, only one. Now, the fact that there is only one God means something. It means that there's only one set of attributes and character traits that belongs to God, because there is only one God. So if there's only one God, there can't be three or four different sets of attributes that are, can be said to belong to God. He is one. Let, let me bring this down. So you can think of, this is getting a little philosophical for me. So let me just put it out front and center, okay? I am how many persons? One. Some of you didn't get that right. That's scary. <laughs> I am one person. And I, so that means I have one set of attributes. I don't, I don't have two, okay? So for example, part of this set of attributes that makes me who I am is I am tall and very skinny. That's true. Yes? So I'm tall and very skinny. Now, nobody could say about me in one breath, he's tall and skinny, and he's also short and fat. <laughs> I have never been called short and fat all my life. I've been called all kinds of things. That is not one of them. I'm on the opposite extreme of, of, of that, okay? I'm skinny, okay? I, people make skinny jokes about me all the time. That's me, tall and skinny. I can't be tall and skinny and short and fat. It's not possible because I'm one person. I'm one person. So there is one set of character traits and one set of attributes that belongs to me and only one because I'm one person, okay? The same is true for God. If there is only one God and he is one, there is one set of traits, one set of attributes, okay? It, you can't say he's, you know, to use a grossly inadequate analogy, he's short and fat and tall and skinny at the same time. You can't say that about God. And obviously we're going to talk about the fact that there's three persons in there. There are three different, the three persons play different roles. There's no question they talk to each other and all that sort of stuff. But God is one. That means the three persons of the Trinity share in equally from the same well. The three persons of the Trinity share in and embody equally one set of attributes and character traits. Does that, does that make sense? If there is only one God, you can't have one member of the Trinity being this, because then part of God is this, and part of God is something else. The three persons of the Trinity, there is one God, there is one set of characters, uh, traits, and attributes that belong to God. The three persons of the Trinity share in that one set, and they all perfectly embody and, and reflect that same set of attributes. Let me show you this in Scripture a little bit more. 
For example, 1 John 4, verse 7 says, God is love. I want you to notice here, it does not say the gods are love. Obviously not. Okay, it says God is love, singular. I want you to also notice that John does not feel the need to specify. He doesn't feel the need to specify Jesus is love and the Holy Spirit is love and the Father is love. He doesn't need to say those things. He just needs to say God is love. There's one God. He is love. He doesn't need to specify among the members of the Trinity. All three of them must share in that same thing and reflect and embody that same attribute, God is love. Does that make sense? Psalm 99 verse 1 says, and we could do dozens of these, dozens. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, God is holy. It doesn't say the gods are holy, okay, obviously, because there's only one God. And it also doesn't need to specify Yahweh is holy, and then he, there's this, uh, the Word of God is holy, or, you know, the Old Testament names for the Trinity. It doesn't need to specify that the Father is holy, and Jesus is holy, and the Holy Spirit is holy. It doesn't need to specify because God is one. There's only one set of attributes. All you need to say is God is holy, which means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit must all share in that same attribute. It, they're, they're sharing in the same one. They all perfectly embody that attribute. There's not one that's more or one that's less. Again, there's different roles within the Trinity, but character attributes all the same. Are you with me so far? Some of you are, some of you are not, and I'm just going to leave those of you who are not behind now, all right? So to sum up, okay, so let's just sum this up, okay? Let's put the Trinity up there, the next slide there. Let's, uh, here's the Trinity, and again, by the way, the Trinity, the three-in-one thing, you're never going to get your mind fully around it. You, you, I had a guy come to me yesterday. My mind's hurting. I said, I told you in a message not to try to get it. So I'm telling you right now, no human being has ever gotten this in the sense of they got their mind around it. But the writers of Scripture were writing to normal people and they wrote about this stuff all the time, which means that they expect normal people to know what, who God is, not to understand it in the sense that I get what three and one is, but to know it and accept it. Amen. Because again, false doctrine, heresies throughout the, to the last 2,000 years of the existence of the church are based on distortions of this almost all the time. Somewhere if you go to the root of it. So the Trinity is, there is only one God. There is only one God. Okay? He exists in three persons and each person is fully God. I'm going to talk about that more. That's mystery. How that can be in one God, that's mystery. But here's the takeaway. So, Part two there, you don't have to fully get it. You have to accept it. You have to know it. You have to accept it. But the application here is, this you can get your mind around. If God is one God, all those three persons must share the same set of attributes, which means that the three persons of the Trinity all perfectly share and embody the same set of attributes. They're not different from each other. They're different in role, not different in what they're like. Okay? Really really important. Once you understand this, a bunch of passages in the New Testament, many of which we've already looked at in this series, make more sense. I'm just going to go through a few right now, okay? For example, and this, and again, we've looked at some of these already, but I just want to, I, I want to just bring them into a fuller sense. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, okay, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. See, Philip still has a tri he has differences in the Trinity in his mind. Of course, he doesn't fully yet know who Jesus is fully, but he, he's confused about who God is. So he knows who Jesus is, but he thinks, and like most of us, we think, well, if I know Jesus, I still have to get to know God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's not how the Trinity works. Because remember, they all share the same set of attributes and characteristics. So Jesus can say to Philip, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? So Philip says, show me the Father, and Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, I'm going I'm to introduce you to him. He says, have I been with you so long? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? Think about that statement. The Father cannot be radically different than Jesus. He can't be way more powerful and way more glorious and way more majestic and way more wrathful against sin the way we picture him because then if you've seen Jesus, you haven't seen the Father. But there is only one God. So the three persons of the Trinity all share in equally from one set of character traits, and Jesus embodies that perfectly so that if you've met Jesus, the Father is no stranger to you whatsoever. 
Because the Father and Jesus are just like that. Now, that doesn't mean that when you go to heaven, someone asked me yesterday, you know, so when Jesus is judging me, am I looking at Jesus or the Father? That doesn't mean that they're the same, in the same body, in the same form all the time. Scripture shows us many passages where, in, if you look at Revelation, where the Father's on his throne, Jesus at the right hand, the Holy Spirit is there. I'm not saying that they're, when you look at them, and we, we looked at last week, John 12 clearly says Isaiah 6 is Jesus. So you can see someone, and you're not, it's not like they all look, they're not all like that. It's, they can still be in three separate forms. The point is, they are, so, they, they are the same character, they are the same attributes, the same power, the same glory, the same holiness. If you've met Jesus, you have met the Father in a sense, and you know him. Does that make sense? All right. Let's look at another passage here. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's very interesting again. It says here that if you look at the face of Jesus, if you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and, and I'm so encouraged, I'm talking to so many of you, and, I've, and I'm hearing that you're, many of you are every day in the Gospels and going hard after this thing, and I'm really glad about that. That's a good fruit that's coming out of this series. That's the best fruit. Get to know Jesus yourself. But as you're studying the life of Jesus in here, this passage is saying, if I see Jesus, I have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You are seeing the full picture of God. Now, think about that for a minute. That means Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit can't be different. Because if the Father is different from Jesus, he's different in attributes, different in character, and the Holy Spirit is different in attributes, different in character, if they're different, then when you look at Jesus, you're only getting part of a revelation of God. Does that make sense? Because there's a whole bunch of stuff you're not seeing. But Paul says, when you see Jesus, you're seeing everything there is to know about God. Well, if you're seeing everything there is to know about God in Jesus, that means the Holy Spirit and the Father can't be different. Different form, yeah, different persons. There's three persons. I mean, not different in character, attributes, and all of those things. Because if the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are different, when you look at Jesus, you're only seeing one-third of, of God. But Colossians says this, Colossians 1 verse 19 says this, For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. One-third of the fullness of God? No. In Jesus, the fullness of God the full power, glory, holiness, it's all there. The 100% fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus is the fullness of God. There can't be other parts of God that are different than Jesus. Okay? Now, I'm a math guy, so I'm going to now show you God with some math. How many of you are in for that? And the rest of you can just suffer for a little bit, all right? I'm going to show you some bad, I'm going to show you some good math now. It's good math, but it's bad trinity. Here's how most of us think about the trinity. A third plus a third plus a third equals one. Okay? This is how we think in our hearts about the trinity. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about math, if you add three thirds together, you get one. So that's good math. It's bad trinity. In our hearts, we think Jesus has, you know, like a third of God's attributes. And the Father has a different set. He has like maybe a third of his attributes. And the Holy Spirit has a different set. Like, for example, let me, let me just rabbit trail here for just a second. Okay. For example, let me, let me just make this real for you. We often talk about the Holy Spirit being gentle. That is true. We talk about it here at Southland. We never have to be sorry for saying that. We never have to think twice about saying that. The Holy Spirit is gentle. But here's the thing. Often when we say the Holy Spirit is gentle, in our minds we're excluding the Father and Jesus as if they aren't gentle. If the Holy Spirit is gentle, he's gentle because God is gentle. One set of attributes. Does that make sense? So yeah, you can say, and we should say, the Holy Spirit is gentle. We can say that. No, there's no question. We don't have to feel bad about saying that. The point is, when we say that, we shouldn't have over here the Father and Jesus are somehow excluded from that. If the Holy Spirit is gentle, it's because God is gentle, okay? So we have this idea, like the Holy Spirit has some of God's attributes, the gentle ones, and the Father has some of those, and Jesus has some of those. And then when you put them together, then you get the full picture of God. And that's not what Colossians, I just read you a few passages, I could show you tons more. Scripture says over and over and over again, when you look at Jesus, you don't see a third of God, you don't see one side of God, you see the full picture. 
That means Jesus can't have a third of God's attributes. That means Jesus has all of his attributes. So now I'm going to show you Trinity math, okay? So here's Trinity math. Trinity math is bad math, but it's good Trinity, okay? Trinity math is 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Jesus is the fullness of God. When you look at him, you're not seeing a piece of God. And when, you, when we meet the Father, now we don't actually know much about the Father in Scripture because Yahweh has chosen to identify himself to us through the life of Jesus. That's why we focus on him. But one day we're going to meet the Father too, and we're going to, he's fully God too, and so is the Holy Spirit, and together they are one God, okay? Because it's three persons sharing in one set of attributes and character traits, all right? So we're going to leave this now, and uh, I'm going to go to the Yahweh thing. I'm just going to one more time, just for you to write down, some of you, if you didn't make a note the last time, that the, here's the Trinity. Here's the three things you need to just remember about the Trinity, all right? God exists as three persons, okay, one God. Three persons share one set of attributes, character, traits, okay? Each person is fully God. There is only one God, okay? And there are so many applications. I mean, I could do a series. I, I was listing on my board all the applications. There are many applications to life in the church that come out from the Trinity, but we won't touch on them here in this series on Jesus. But one application you can get your head around is, as a result of these three things, you have to remember that the three persons of the Trinity all perfectly share and embody the same set of attributes. We have to stop playing the members of the Godhead off each other. Once this sinks into your heart, by the way, it should do three things to you when you think about Jesus. It should increase your fear of him, it should increase your awe of him, and it should increase your love for him. It should increase your fear of him, because when you read in the Old Testament about God being wrathful against sinners and punishing them, you have to recognize that he fully embodies that same set of attributes. That's him there too. It should increase your awe of him, because when you read in the Old Testament about God on Mount Sinai and thunder and lightning, we usually think, that's got to be God the Father, because Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't like that. What, are you kidding me? I can show you passages in Revelation where the Holy Spirit is a blazing fire and thunder and lightning. All three of them are thunder and lightning and all that Mount Sinai stuff. It should increase your awe of Jesus and it should increase your love for Jesus as we looked at last week because when he's hanging on there on the cross, that is the same God with all the power to split the Red Sea, yet he lets them put nails through his wrists. That's what the Trinity should increase our awe for Jesus, our love for Jesus, and our fear of Jesus because all the attributes of God are in him, okay? So now let's clear up this thing about Yahweh and God the Father and Jesus, Okay? Yahweh and God the Father and Jesus. And Egan, if you want to go ahead, two, two diagrams actually. Uh, yeah, just go past this one. Go to the next one. Again, we have this idea that Yahweh is one part of the Trinity and then Jesus is a different part, Holy Spirit is a different part. And this is the wrong way to view it. And also, the other problem with this diagram is it puts it into thirds as if, as if, each, as if each person is just a part of who God is when each person fully re represents who God is, Okay. So, so those are a couple of problems. But the thing you have to understand here that I want to hit on the most is that Yahweh isn't one part of the Trinity. He's the whole thing. I want to show you that now in Scripture. Isaiah 45, verse 5. And again, I could show you dozens. There is so much Scripture we could look at. But uh, let me just show you Isaiah 45, verse 5. God says this, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other besides me there is no God. Okay? So, first of all, this is another passage out of many, 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 many I could show you that clearly state there is only one God, not three, okay? But the statement I want you to notice here, I underline it there, is besides me there is no God. That's very interesting. Yahweh says, I am God, and besides me there is no God. So what that means is, anyone not named Yahweh isn't God, right? Doesn't that make sense? Yahweh says, besides me there is no other. So anyone not named Yahweh isn't God. Okay, so let's apply that to the Trinity. If the Holy Spirit isn't named Yahweh, he isn't God. If God the Father isn't named Yahweh, he isn't God, because besides Yahweh, there is no other God. And if Jesus isn't Yahweh, he isn't God. Okay? So what we're seeing here in the Trinity is not only there's only one set of character traits that belong to God, and all three persons of the Trinity share those traits. But there's one divine name for God, and all three persons of the Trinity share that divine name. Does that make sense? I will show you one more scripture here. Okay? 
Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Again, there's so many, so many, so many. But know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord Yahweh is God in heaven and above and on the earth beneath there is no other. There is no God besides Yahweh. Therefore, the persons of the Trinity share in that name equally. Okay? So, back to more diagrams here. I love diagrams. There's the old picture. Yahweh just belongs to one piece of the Trinity. False. Next one. How do you like that big, bold, red X? I found it on clip art. Uh, <laughs> I should have taken the lines out of the next one so that you don't see it in thirds. But anyway, Yahweh is God. And then within Yahweh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Sharing in the divine, sharing in the divine name. Okay? So, now. Okay? A little bit of a mind bender here. But uh, again, these are things we have to know and accept. But there's application here that's really important. So when the New Testament writers, like the New Testament writers, as I showed you last week, and if you, and if you get that book I talked about at the beginning of this message, the New Testament is just going to come alive because you're going to see them doing it in hundreds of places. But the New Testament writers, they are obsessed with taking Jesus. See, all the Jews and all the people thought, he's just a man. And the New Testament writers are, 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 are obsessed with showing he's not just a man, and they're putting the man into that identity. They're saying, he is Yahweh. Over and over again, they're saying that. Now, they're not thinking in their heads like what some of you were thinking after I preached last week. You were thinking, well, if Jesus is Yahweh, then you're booting the Father out. The New Testament writers, when they put Jesus into the divine name, when they put him into the Yahweh identity, they're not thinking that us Westerners are going to come along 2,000 years later and take the Father and the Holy Spirit out. They're putting him in, but the Father is still there too. And the Holy Spirit is still there too. They are exalting Jesus, but they're not pulling down the Father of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So everything you felt last week at the end of that message, when we began to feel the weight of the glory of Jesus, that is what the New Testament writers want you to feel. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. But at the same time, you don't have to, in the back door of your head, take the Father and the Holy Spirit and dial them down. You can feel the same way about them. Does that make sense? Jesus is Yahweh, but the fact that Jesus is Yahweh doesn't mean the Father and the Holy Spirit aren't. Doesn't mean the Father and the Holy Spirit aren't. So, for example, when a New Testament writer say, Jesus created the earth, we should go, wow, the man Jesus created the earth. We should be in awe. Oh, I love you, I worship you. But at the same time, we shouldn't then in the back door of our mind somewhere go, oh, so I guess the Father was just sitting there twiddling his thumbs while Jesus created the earth. That's what, we, that's what we Westerners do. Oh, if Jesus created it, then the Father didn't. No, I can show you passages in Scripture where that show that the Father did it and that the Holy Spirit participated in it too. One God. So when the New Testament writers say Jesus created the earth, you don't have to go with your little Western mind, oh, the Father didn't do it and cross him off. The answer is yes. Who created the earth? Jesus or the Father? Yes. Jesus said, I do nothing that the Father isn't doing. Well, that makes sense. One God. One God. When Jude says Jesus led the Israelites out of Egypt, he's not saying, you know, Western mind thinking about this going, oh, so the Father watched Jesus do it. No. The Father and Jesus, the Trinity, they will have participated together. And yes, they are three distinct persons, and Jesus prays to the Father, no question. And he went to the cross and felt abandoned by the Father, so they play different roles. They are distinct, but there is one God. For example, and I want to show you, I just put this in this morning, all the Saturday night people miss out, okay? But you should still switch over, like uh, Dad said. Um, <laughs> next week I'm going to put some stuff in there and you won't get it, all right? But uh, for example, let's talk about the resurrection. I just want to show you the Trinity at work in the resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Who raised him from the dead? Most Christians would say the Father did, and you would be 100% correct, Okay? But when we say that the Father did it, we think Jesus and the Holy Spirit didn't do it. And I'm going to show you three passages now. The Bible clearly gives credit to, to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father in different passages for raising Jesus from the dead. John 10, verse 17 to 18. For example, this is Jesus speaking to his, to his uh, disciples. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. By the way, I just love Jesus. Look at the authority here. I mean, meditate on passages like this all the time. Because he's, he's sovereign over your life too. Think about that. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. Pilate didn't take it from him. The Jewish leaders didn't take it from him. 
The only way anyone can take Jesus' life from him is he gave it. I give my life, and I take it up. He says, and I'm going to raise my own self from the dead. That's who I am. Yahweh, you try that. <laughs> Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He would, because he's Yahweh. This charge I've received from my Father. So this passage is very clear. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus raised his own self from the dead. Okay? Well, then we go to Romans 8, verse 11, and where our little Western minds are working. Okay, Jesus did, and the Holy Spirit and the Father didn't. And then we get to Romans 8, verse 11, and it says this. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, clearly speaking about the Holy Spirit here, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So who raised Jesus from the dead? The Holy Spirit of Jesus. Yes. Acts 2, 32 to 33. This Jesus, God raised up. And commentators are in agreement that this is referring to God the Father here. And you're going to see why in just a minute. And, that, and of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Because throughout Scripture... Jesus is shown being at the right hand of God the Father. So they are two distinct persons. You can't be at the right hand of yourself. Okay, you can't. Chris preached at the right hand of himself. No. So they are two separate persons, okay? And yet, they are one. They share it's one set of character attributes, one divine name. But being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, so this is talking about God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing here, and I could show you many, many more, but the scripture, the scripture writers give credit to all three because it's one, Yahweh, did it. Does that make sense? Okay? So to summarize this, now I want to show you the name above every name. I love this part of the message. This is my favorite part. Okay? But just to sum up the Trinity, okay? Here's the Trinity. Last week, we came in awe of Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Don't dial that back even one little bit. Turn that dial, crank it up. He is 100% Yahweh. He is all of Yahweh. He is Yahweh amazing. As you do that, though, in your mind, you don't need to dial the Father and the Holy Spirit down. Do you see what we're doing here? Jesus is that God. And so is the Father and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's finish this message now. And this part is perfect. I asked the Holy Spirit this week, we got baptisms going, Jesus. Would you give me something to end this message off and I just love the way he works. You can ask him stuff. And he, and he gives you answers. And so he, he led me, and he, and he led me to go back to Philippians 2, which we, we looked at last week. Remember last week, we ended the message, glorious passage, Philippians 2, how Jesus is Yahweh. He's the God of Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw him. His robe filled the temple, and that God emptied himself out and went to the cross. Unbelievable. And it's one of the most popular, famous passages for, you know, Christians. It's always on the radio and, and stuff like that. We love it. And so no doubt some of you will notice that I, I, there's a couple verses actually at the end of that passage that I just left out. And I, I want to finish them off tonight. I want to show you something in there about the name of Jesus that is just awesome. But let's just start where we started last week and, and then do the whole passage. So here's Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember, he, he, did, not, he did not count his, all of his stuff, his divineness, his deity, his power, something to be used for his own advantage. Amen. I love him. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, so that's awesome. He emptied himself. He came down of heaven and amazing. We should meditate on that more and more and more. Okay, next verse. Now, that's where I stopped last week. Let's keep going this week. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, again, this is a famous Christian passage. We love to talk about this one. It's in devotionals. It's on, you know, the, the radio all the time, stuff like that. Um, but one of the things I know in my own life, this is true. Many of us, I bet you 95% of us, we never stop there and go, what is the name above every name? I mean, don't we all know this passage? But how many of us have ever stopped to think, okay, God gave Jesus the name that is above every other name. What's he talking about there? What is the name that is above 
every name. Well, if we recall, who is writing this? Well, it's Paul, and he's a Jew. Raised in the strictest religious schools of Judaism in the, in the Pharisaical tradition. So for the Jews, was there one name that just sticks out as being kind of a name that was super holy or reverent to them? Well, there's no question. There's no question. There is only one name that for a Jew could be considered to be the name that is above every other name, and that is the name Yahweh, okay? That is the name Yahweh. The Jews considered Yahweh to be so, that name to be so holy, they were so reverent about that name, that they wouldn't even speak it out loud. They wouldn't speak it out loud. So if they were reading in the scriptures, you know, in the synagogue or the temple, and they would come across a verse that had the word, that they would see the word Yahweh there, they wouldn't say it. They'd be reading, like let's say it said, I am Yahweh, the verse. And they, they would read, I am the Lord. They would insert the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, in there, and they would just keep reading. They would always substitute Lord for Yahweh because they didn't want to be guilty of misusing the name of the Lord. The, the, the name Yahweh was so holy to them. So they would insert Lord. Anywhere it came up, Lord. They would just say Lord, okay, in conversation. They wouldn't even write it down if they couldn't help. I mean, when they were copying the scriptures, they'd have to write Yahweh out. But anywhere else that they didn't have to, they wouldn't even write it out. They would always insert the word Lord in for Yahweh, Adonai, or in the Greek, Kyrios. Now, by the way, incidentally, this is why, this is ultimately the reason why the word Lord now appears in our English translations instead of Yahweh. Okay? Uh, Somewhere along the line, very shortly, you know, within a couple of centuries, the Christian translators picked up on this habit, and instead of translating Yahweh in in our scriptures, you'll find in your Bibles the capital Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals, that's where the word Yahweh is. It's picked up. It's that same tradition, okay? So they just inserted Lord. By the way, there's a whole thing we could go into. I don't have time to today. Probably 70% of the time that you see Jesus is Lord in the New Testament, they're not just saying he's the boss. They're saying he is Yahweh. And I could show you this in many places. For example, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he says, you must declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's not just saying Jesus is the boss. He is saying that. That's included in Yahweh is the boss. He is the capital B-O-S-S, boss. He is the boss. But for our Western minds, it's much bigger than that. The salvation message isn't Jesus is the boss. It is that. The salvation message is Jesus is Yahweh. So Paul says, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. He's talking about Yahweh. But now the wording here again is a little bit weird. What does it mean he bestowed on him the name above every other name, that he bestowed on him the name of Yahweh? Because as I've shown you the last couple of weeks, Jesus is Yahweh. So what does it mean that after he died, he emptied himself, he came, he died, he took the form of a servant, he died and rose again, and after he died and rose, then God gave him the name Yahweh? It doesn't make sense. He already was Yahweh. He was Yahweh long before he was Jesus, Right? The thing you have to understand here, I'm going to show you this now from the Old Testament, and then I'm going to show you the, next, the rest of this verse, and you're going to see it. Paul's point here is not that Jesus got the name Yahweh after he died. He already was Yahweh. He was Yahweh before time started. He, was, he created the universe. He is Yahweh. Later on, he became a human being and was born. Yahweh was born into a poor, dusty, dirty little you know, manger stable. But he already was Yahweh, and he took on the name of Jesus. What Paul is saying here is not that Jesus somehow became Yahweh after his death and resurrection. What Paul is saying here is that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the name Jesus got exalted up to be the same level of honor and glory and power as Yahweh. I'm going to show you this right away now, and then we're going to come back to this passage. See, before Jesus' death and resurrection, the thing you have to understand is the Jews, the Jews were very clear about something. Before Jesus died and rose again, the Jews knew there is only one name that has the power to save. That's Yahweh. There is no other name by which you can be saved. I'll show you a couple of verses. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. This is the, the prophet Joel looking to the end times on the day of judgment and seeing that only those who trust in Yahweh, only those who call on the name of Yahweh can be saved. Okay? I can show you many, many other passages, but here's Psalm 116, four, uh, verse 4 and 13. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Notice again, the name Yahweh is holy and powerful and good to trust in Yahweh. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh, okay? So now, 
So the Jews all knew this, okay? The name of Yahweh is the only name by which we can be saved. Okay, but then something very interesting happened. As I said before, Yahweh came down to earth and put on human flesh. And in his human flesh, he took on a human name. And he took on the name, what we say, Jesus. In Hebrew, it's just Yeshua. It's the same name as Joshua. Now, the name Yeshua, is, it's a wonderful name. Jesus is a wonderful name. It means God saves. It's a perfect name for Yahweh coming down to save people. It's a perfect name. But the thing you have to understand is, it was also a common name. Lots of people were named Joshua. Lots. There was no, you know, it's not by the name of Joshua that people are going to be saved. There was no power in the name of Joshua. Yahweh was the name. And then Yahweh took on flesh and took on a common name in his flesh, Jesus. Common name. Yeshua, Joshua. Okay? But then, in his human body, with the common name Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, in that common name, he went to the cross, Yahweh did, and he died. And he rose again. And when he rose again, something happened in the heavenlies, something was triggered in the heavenlies that was a massive shift for any follower of God up to that point. Up to that point, the name of Yahweh, the name alone, is the one by which we were saved. Within just a few weeks of Yahweh dying on the cross in his human body with the common name Jesus, within just a few weeks, the disciples are preaching some, the worst, it's either the worst blasphemy or the most amazing truth. They are preaching that now this common name Jesus is the name by which people are saved. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter sees a, a, a lame man and a man wants money. And Peter says, I don't have any of that. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he does it in the name of Jesus, not the name of Yahweh. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and, and walks. Wow. And everybody's gawking. Whoa. I mean, that's how you get a crowd, right? And while they're gawking, Peter just comes in and nails them with what must have been one of the most shocking messages. They're all Jews around here. Nails them with one of the most shocking messages a Jew could ever hear. And he says this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is, now remember, all over the Old Testament, there is salvation by only one name, Yahweh. And look at the switch that has happened. Yahweh came to earth and died as Jesus, and now there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says there's a new name in town. There's a new name with all the power. And it's not that Yahweh, it's not that Yahweh isn't special anymore. Yahweh is still the divine name. But Yahweh came to earth and said, I am Jesus. You must come to me through Jesus. And so Yahweh went like this and he said, from now on you're saved by Jesus. You want to come to Yahweh? It's got to be through Jesus. You can't circumvent Jesus and just try to go straight to Yahweh anymore. It is through the name of Jesus that we are saved. And so the name of Jesus went from being a common name. It went from being a common name and was exalted to the same status as this divine name which they wouldn't even speak, the divine name Yahweh. And so if we go back to Philippians chapter 2 now. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. He already had the name Yahweh. What God is doing now is making Jesus the same. It's the same honor, the same glory, the same power. And I'll show you that now in the rest of this verse. So that at the name of Yahweh, no, no. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Lord there is clearly, he's quoting here Isaiah 45, 23. This is a direct quote. In Isaiah 45, 23, it says that every knee will bow to Yahweh. And he says that we'll confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He's talking about Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Yahweh is still the divine name for God, but Jesus is the way that we are saved and is the name of Jesus that we are to call on now in these days. And so that's my message. We're going to go into the baptisms now. But I know there's different groups of people here today. Some of you are here today, you're just visiting, you're here for the baptisms, and you have never called on the name of Jesus to be saved. Well, God brought you here today to give you an opportunity to call on Jesus' name and be saved. 
It's, it really is that simple. You can call on the name of Jesus today and say, Jesus, I will follow you. You are God. You are the one who made me. I will follow you. You can call on his name, and you can be saved today. Some of you, you're, many of you here today, you're Christians. You've been Christians for many, many years, and you kind of yawn, oh, this is the part where they, they get people to become Christians for the first time or whatever, and you think this doesn't apply to you. No, no. The name of Jesus is not just something, it's, it's not just the name we call on once in our life, now I'm saved, and the rest of my life I have no name to call on anymore. The name of Jesus is the, is the name by which we are saved, not just once, but throughout our whole lives. I had conversations this week with people that would, you know, almost broke my heart, people who are in deep struggles here in our church family, in their marriage, and at work, and in their families. They have deep, deep hurts, struggles, problems that are pressing in to crush them. The Bible says those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Not just saved for the next life, but even saved in this life. And all it takes is going to Jesus and saying, I'm going to call on your name, Jesus. I need help. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And you call on the name of Jesus. And so I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. And we're going to pray a prayer now. And I want you guys to just do it with me so that if, if new people are here and they want to get saved, they can do it. It's the first time. But it's, it's not just for people who just want to call on Jesus for the first time. This is for all of us. Many of you are here today and you have issues in your life, in your ministry, in your marriage, whatever, and you can't overcome them. You can call in the name of Jesus too and be saved. And so we're just going to call in the name of Jesus together today. So I just want you to follow after me. I'm just going to say a little thing and you just repeat after me and we're going to call in the name of Jesus. Amen? Is, are, you, are you with me on that one? All right. Dear Lord Jesus, I call on your name today. Please save me. Save me from my sins. Save me from myself. Save me from the problems that press in all around me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.